Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This is a very special episode of the a podcast. Very special episode for sure. We're excited to welcome Dr. Peter Hotez. Dr. Hotez is a world-renowned physician scientist who has specialized in vaccine development, pediatrics, and neglected tropical diseases. A widely respected public intellectual, he holds many coveted positions, including serving as the Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine, as well as co-director of the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development and the Texas Children's Hospital Endowed Chair of Tropical Pediatrics. Dr. Hotez is renowned for pioneering vaccines for infectious diseases. He relentlessly advocates for vaccine access and has written several books on the science behind vaccines and the socioeconomic and biological effects of tropical and poverty-related diseases. Recently, he has been writing about the dangers of the anti-vax movement and misinformation and disinformation. He worked on vaccine diplomacy in the Obama administration as a U.S. envoy and has kick-started special infectious disease task forces under several Texas governors. He regularly testifies before Congress and is a frequent presence on national TV networks, educating the public about infectious diseases, preventive measures, and how we can help each other reduce threats from infectious diseases. We're excited to do this podcast at the same time as the release of his most recent book, The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, a scientist's warning, dealing with the anti-vaccine movement and the detrimental effects it has had on public health and safety. Welcome, Dr. Peter Hotez. What are you telling people right now as, as this book emerges about this particular phase in the pandemic, knowing what we know about how divisive this topic has been in the past? Well, thank you. For- Hi, Peter. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Well, well, first of all, what I want to say is that you know, one part of the introduction that maybe didn't mention is I've probably spent more a, a years of my adult life at Yale University than any than any single place. I was Yale a college graduate. We want you back. I was a Yale undergraduate <laughs> with Harlan back in the Pleistocene era, and then uh, <laughs> and then was uh, after that eleven years as a postdoctoral fellow in pediatric infectious disease in the School of Public Health, and came on the faculty and. And so I have amazing, fond memories of both Yale University, the Medical Center, and New Haven. And so anytime I can maintain that connection, that's something very special for well, me. We appreciate it. And we Yale loves that as well. So thank you for saying that. Yeah. Come on back. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So your, ahead, your, so your question was about what's happening with COVID. Um, and, and really, how do we deal with it now knowing just how divisive this topic is. Like you can already see the health freedom people, as you talk about in your book, already agitating for a fight over this next phase. How do we deal with that? Yeah. I mean, you try to sound concerned, but also like I always have concerned, but measured. In this case, the numbers are going up in terms of cases and hospitalizations and wastewater, all, you know, positivity, all those numbers are going up. But we are starting at a very low level because we reached probably a nade or a low point in those numbers, you know, late in the spring, early summer in, in June. So yes, the numbers going up, I'm getting concerned. I think the, the hard part's going to be getting people to accept this new monovalent XBB booster. 
um, which I think is really important because now these new XBB variants, which includes EG5 that's out there and the flip variants are so different from the original lineage. Not a lot of people got their Omicron booster, bivalent booster last September in 2022, only about 17% of eligible Americans. So that most of the country has not been boosted for a long, long time. So there is that vulnerability. So even though I don't expect this to turn into a wave that'll look anything like 2021, 2022, there could be a lot of people profoundly disappointed to find out they're winding up in the hospital because they're not taking the booster. And and you're right, now with all of the anti-vaccine aggression out there and everything else, it's harder than ever to persuade Americans to take this booster. So uh, I'll be first in line for it. I took a second bivalent booster, me and about six other people in, in in the United States. And, <laughs> and so we're, we're going to, um, it's, it's, it's going to be a, a, a tough battle to, to limit the number of hospitalizations and serious illness. And because although long COVID can occur in anybody with, with who gets COVID statistically, it's more likely with severe illness. And, and so I worry we're going to have an unnecessary number of people affected by long COVID as well. You know, I, I want to get to some things in the book, but let me just follow on one other quick question. So a lot of people some, you know, ask me, you know, I had COVID two weeks ago. Do I really need to get vaccinated? Or well, let me just start with that. Like, what do you tell people like that who say, you know, hey, aren't I auto vaccinated now because I was just, you know, tested positive two weeks ago? So, so here's here's the problem. What some people call natural infection or just infection with the, these new Omicron or Omicron variants don't seem to provide as much enduring protection as maybe the earlier lineages for reasons that we don't entirely know. So the best thing you can do is if you've had a breakthrough Omicron infection, and in 2022, I had one as, as well, probably from a BA2 um, variant, um, is to get vaccinated on top of it. Because when you do that, and the Yale immunologists are as good as anyone to explain this because you've got this extraordinary immunobiology center at Yale, which, which is that it, by getting vaccinated on top of that, it, it stimulates your memory B cells to vary up and broaden your epitopes that you're responding to. So the best protection you could get then would be that hybrid immunity after infection, getting vaccinated on top of it. So I'm a strong proponent of telling people don't rely on your previous infection, especially your Omicron or Omicron derivative infection to, to protect you because it might not. And people are always asking about timing. And I presume that since there's a wave building now that you're going to say, take it as soon as it's available. You said you're going to take it as soon as available. But a lot of people will ask this question like, when's the best time to get a booster knowing that it might only have its peak protection for a few months? What do you tell them? Well, in, in this case, so it's a different discussion for flu than for COVID, but for COVID, um, we don't know what's going to happen by early 2024. There may be an entirely different variant. We are seeing some other things pop up like the 2.86. I don't know if that'll turn out to be a player or not, but um, my, my advice is now th now's the time that XBB seems to be ascending or XBB derivatives. And I'm disappointed that the that the booster is not available now yeah. because I've already got events scheduled in Washington, D.C. and New York in September. And so there's going to be a vulnerability there. So um, I, I would say get this XBB booster as, as soon as it's out because, you know, six months down the line, either 
things won't be a problem at all, which is fine, or there could be something entirely uh, different out there. I wanted to pivot a little bit to the book, which I think is so important. And, and it's not just a book about this moment. It's a book about, I, I think it'll be an enduring piece because really it, it's about these forces in society and and groups that that sort of refuse to to engage and accept in, in, in scientific knowledge and fail to coalesce around common facts. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of room for disagreement in science, but there are areas where we believe that we, we have you know, sort of established knowledge. And yet, you know, we, we, we're fighting about things that seem like, you know, it's not something that's going to flip in terms of our understanding. I wanted to say that I was really touched by the part where you're talking also about your family and your father. And many people may not, may not have, you know, known that about your background. I wonder if you could just get, just maybe tell a little bit about your dad and, and, uh, and, and what role he played in your life or your family played in your life as you know, the person you've become. So to take a step back, I think one of the themes of the book is how the anti-vaccine movement has pivoted around phony baloney, making false claims that vaccines cause autism. That was my earlier book that vaccines did not cause Rachel's autism. And Rachel, by the way, was diagnosed at the Yale Child Study Center when I was on the faculty uh, here and, and, you know, to debunk all that, but it pivoted and it took on a political dimension starting in Texas with the Republican Tea Party, and now it's unfortunately become full-on embraced is by the House Freedom Caucus and Fox News and, 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 the, and the far right. And I talk about the evolution of that and why it's difficult to talk about. But, you know, the reason my dad came up was amongst the threats that I get either online or, or even real stalkings is, you know, they say the army of patriots is, is coming to hunt me down. And well, my first response is, I don't know why you need an army of patriots. Now at home, it's just me and Ann and Rachel and the cat. You'd think a single patriot or two patriots were enough. But other than that is to say, wait a minute, guys, who are the patriots here? I mean, this is a nation. The United States of America is built on a nation of science and technology and our great research universities like, like Yale University and 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 Baylor College of Medicine and, and others. We're the patriots, not, not these chuckleheads, you know, who um, attack science and scientists. And, you know, my dad was um, uh, uh, in, in college. He was at uh, Trinity College, actually, in, in Hartford, and, and was told if he signs here for the Navy v, V12 program, they'll send him to medical school. And, of course, it was at a tough time in the war, and they sent him to the Pacific Theater, and he was on a landing ship transport uh, ship in Okinawa and Saipan in the Philippines and, and never, that's a, that's a patriot. That's, that's a, a, I said, that's a, that's, that's what a, I know patriot. what a patriot is. That's a patriot. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, and patriot. Um, so he came back from the war. So, you know, this, the, the rhetoric that's being used. And I think, so there's, there's really two themes to the book. You know, the one is, you know, too often we're calling all this anti-vaccine stuff or phony baloney about COVID origins as misinformation or infodemic. And I say, no, it's not any of those things because that implies that it's just random junk on the internet. And it's not that. The point of the book is to say it's organized, it's it's well-financed, and it's and it's a politically it's politically motivated, and it's a very sophisticated, nefarious, but nefistic, sophisticated. Uh, anti-vaccine, anti-science ecosystem. So, and we could talk about that. The second point of the book is it's not just targeting the science; it's targeting the scientist and trying to portray us as 
public enemies or enemies of the state. And, and you're seeing that play out now with the, the subcommittee house hearings, you know, trying to parade, you know, very serious scientists in front of C-SPAN cameras to try to humiliate them. And, and I said, wait a minute, this is, this is United States of America. We, we don't do this. You know, this again, this is a nation built on science and technology. I think for me, it's been one of the hardest books I've ever had to write. It's the hardest thing to talk about because it means you have to talk about partisan politics and, and all of our training. And I even have a section of the book of how do we even talk about this? And I haven't found a way to talk about it other than to talk about it. So I talk about it, which is this basically it's that says, look, I understand, you know, as a physician or scientist, all of our training says we have to be politically neutral and not talk about inconvenient things like Republicans and Democrats or liberals or conservatives. Not that I want to talk about it, but the truth is the aggression is coming from uh, uh, one side and and with a killing effect because what the, the data shows is that 200,000 Americans needlessly perished during this COVID pandemic, 200,000, including 40,000 in my state of Texas, because they were targeted by members of the House Freedom Caucus and certain senators, and and I document the role of Fox News in this and certain podcasters. They were victims. They were victims of this targeted ag- aggression. And the information also shows that the deaths overwhelmingly among the unvaccinated who were targeted were uh, in red states, red being Republican, blue being Democrat. And the redder the county, the lower the immunization rate and higher the death rate, so much so that David Leonhardt of the New York Times just calls it red COVID. And and the data is, is so striking that one person I quote from the Kaiser Family Foundation said, if you wanted to ask me one question about whether a person was vaccinated or not, the and I can only know one thing about that person, it would be knowing their political affiliation. And and it's not that it's not that we care about their it's not that we They're care killing about, voters. They're killing voters. Yeah, it's totally self-defeating. Absolutely. In fact, one of the political pundits from the Republicans even mentions that that, that, that it could actually affect our ability to win elections in, in close closely contested elections or, or swing swing counties. Um, and so I make the point, look, I mean, I don't care about your conservative or whatever you call this extremist views. You know, that's part of being an American. You're allowed to have that. But somehow we've got to figure out a way to uncouple the anti-science from it because, you know, take that out of the canon. I mean, I'm not commenting about whether you favor Putin over Ukraine or whether you believe the election was stolen you know, that's not my purview or, or really even interest. But my interest when it spills over into my lane is to say, wait a minute, don't adopt these anti-vaccine attitudes or, or the, other, the other anti-science stuff being put out there because that's going to kill you. And the evidence is 200,000 Americans have died and multiple ways of accounting for that that I go through in, in the book. And, and so the point is anti what used to be you know, phony baloney about autism is now become a lethal societal force in the United United States. So I want to I want to come back to the autism discussion because we're right now around the 25th anniversary of the famously discredited Wakefield paper, which people used to espouse an anti-vaccine movement based on causation with autism, which. It, it is not. There is no connection. But you devoted a separate book, and not only that, but did so uh, putting your daughter at the center of that. Can you speak a little about 
what it was like to have to commit to doing that and putting your own personal life on the line to explain to people why this was, as you call it, phony baloney? Yeah, the book's called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism actually talks about, you know, when she was diagnosed at the All Child Study Center and what that meant for us. And at the time we were first living in Westville and then uh, in, in Cheshire and and growing up with Rachel, we have three other uh, kids not not on the autism uh, spectrum. And and so kind of putting it out there with, with two messages, one with the, you know, detailing the vast amount of evidence showing there's no link between vaccines and autism. And, and the anti-vaccine groups keep on moving the goalposts. You never really can pin them down exactly what their concern is. First, they said it was the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine that did this, a live virus vaccine. That's what the Wakefield paper that was all about. But that was debunked and showed the kids who got the MMR vaccine were no more likely to acquire autism than kids who didn't. But then it was thimerosal preservative in vaccine. That's what RFK Jr. was pushing for a long time. And then spacing vaccines too close together, alum and vaccines. So it goes through all that. Then it also talks about um, what an, an alternative narrative, what autism is, because we did whole exome genomic sequencing on, on Rachel and my wife, Anne and I, and found Rachel's autism gene, which is similar to many of the others involved in neuronal connections and communications. Many of them had been reported by the Broad Institute at Harvard, MIT. Many of them are neuronal cytoskeleton genes like, like Rachel. And so the point is there's an, an alternative explanation. And it was a hard book to write about because I'm also writing about my daughter and, and the whole bioethics of that too. So uh, I asked uh, Art Kaplan, who's a very well-known bioethicist, mm -hmm. uh, who's terrific guy. You might even want to have him on your podcast if you haven't already. It's, but he wrote the foreword for the book. And I wanted that to kind of talk about what that meant as well. And 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 I think that had an effect of taking some of the wind out of the sails of the autism piece. And it also made me public enemy number one or two with the anti-vaxxers. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on his Instagram began calling me the OG villain, which... I'm so old and square, um, I had to look up what that meant, the original gangster villain. So th thanks for inviting the original gangster villain on, to, on, on this podcast. But, you know, it did a public service. That also stimulated the anti-vaccine movement to look for a new thing. And the new thing became getting adopted through this propaganda of health freedom, medical freedom by the Republican Tea Party in Texas and ultimately full-on embraced by members of the House Freedom Caucus, and not everyone, but but several of them, and Senators Rand Paul and Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. And and then I document um, in the, this new book, two groups, Media Matters, a watchdog group, and a group out of ETH Zurich, the, the Federal University of Science and Technology in Switzerland, which is where Einstein studied as an undergraduate, documented how the nighttime Fox News anchors every night during that terrible Delta and BA1 Omicron waves filled their broadcasts with anti-vaccine content, falsely discrediting the effectiveness and safety of vaccines. And, and problems, so many Americans went down that rabbit hole and, and refused to get a vaccine. And, and, and Joe Rogan, you know, who I always was fond of, you know, started inviting all these anti-vaccine activists on his podcast in 2021. And, and that had an effect. So it was this whole kind of ecosystem of elected leaders, governors like um, Ron DeSantis, um, members of the House Freedom Caucus, uh, senators, you know, amplified on Fox News, podcasters, so that people basically out of political allegiance 
did not get vaccinated. It made no sense but at one level, but it made sense at the other. Well, let me give you a chance to explain this part because you've talked about the importance of engagement. Of course, it was widely reported that RFK Jr. wanted to debate you and that you thought you know, that, that that would be a fool's errand to, to debate someone like that. Give us your view about how did you make that decision and, and, uh, and, and what you're thinking about the proper way to engage in, in, right. in writing a book one way, but other ways that, that what, what should we be doing? Well, you know, RFK Jr. and I have a, have a history of sorts. Um, in 2017, when he came out and said that President Trump was going to bring him in to head a vaccine commission, a lot of us were wringing our hands and, and I had gotten a call shortly afterwards from, I remember, I'll never forget it, my assistant said, uh, uh, Dr. Francis Collins and Dr. Anthony Fauci are on the phone. Can you talk with them? Wow. <laughs> I, guess, I, guess, wow. Yeah, I said, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and then basically, Peter, you know, we'd like you to see if you can have a conversation with RFK Jr. We'll arrange to be mediated by a a neutral person to, because you have a daughter with autism, you can explain why there's no link between vaccines and <laughs> autism. And so I did, I had a series of phone conversations and then email exchanges and it was very unproductive. He you know, wasn't open to my suggestions or my information. And, and, and he kept on this whole uh, whack-a-mole of keep on switching up what, it, what his concerns were. And so I knew it wasn't going to be productive. And and so when I was invited to, to do this, I said, well, you know, there's there's two reasons I don't want to do it. One is, first of all, I don't want to legitimize it because there are other forces at work. They, they need, they're sort of putting RFK Jr. out there as a viable third party candidate. And they needed serious people to legitimize him. And I wasn't interested in helping them because of all of his anti-vaccine uh, aggression. And second, I said, you know, it's not really how science is done. I mean, science is, and then I also knew it wouldn't be productive because he'd move the goalposts on a podcast just like he did with in our conversations. And I also said, I don't really think of science as being done this way. I mean, we know how science is done, right? We write our papers, we submit them to journals for peer review, we get critical feedback, we revise our papers, we go to scientific conferences, we present our papers in front of critical audiences, and and it's a very effective process. I you know I can't think of too many instances where science was effectively done through a, a public debate, and and I think I even said on I forget if it was MSNBC or maybe it was Mehdi Hassan. I said, uh, you know, I mean, I'll talk with Joe Rogan, but to have RFK Jr. in there is just going to turn it into the Jerry Springer show. And for, for those of us who are old enough to remember what Jerry <laughs> yes. Springer was. In a way, it's the challenge because engaging with someone in that way does elevate them. In a, you know, it, it, it gives this false equivalence to the points of view. And and yet there is a need to be able to to fact check and, and, and be clear about it. But yeah. yeah and, 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 I, and also, you know, the fact that he kept on switching up what he was what alleging I knew that was going to be a frustrating. And then, you know, he had apologized twice for comparing vaccines to the Holocaust and then already, and then, and then he went and did something again, you know, um, well, that, that was a weird thing, uh, right? Like, like that. Want, so he said that 
the, the virus was designed to spare Ashkenazi Jews. Yeah, yeah. It was it, this, it's these old anti-Semitic tropes, even though he swears up and down he's not anti-Semitic, and he keeps on bringing stuff like up this up again. Well, because it's that's good. what he's hearing. I mean, it, it is interesting. It ties together with another point that you brought up on Twitter a week or two ago. You said, what is it about this connection between cryptocurrency you know, grifters and anti-vax activists? And so just recently, Paul Krugman wrote uh, an op-ed in the New York Times, and uh, I thought his quote was really interesting. He said, anti-vax agitation and crypto enthusiasm are both aspects of a broader rise of know-nothingism, one whose greatest strength lies in an intellectually inbred community of very wealthy men. And it ties to what you're saying because RFK and many others have become sort of enthralled of these incredibly wealthy, mostly men who then feed. But of all the things to go after, I mean, if you've got this kind of free time to go after something in in the world, of all the things you go after, why this thing? But it resonates. So, So, Peter, explain to our audience... Well, well, one of the th- one of the things that I say in, in the book is, you know, this is, you know, and I actually had to start talking to political scientists, like or or historians um, that look at authoritarian regimes, like Ruth Ben Gat at, at, at NYU is very helpful for me. I, I would read the writings of Anne Applebaum or even Hannah Arendt, you know, in the origins of totalitarianism. She, all all three, you know, point out that part of the canon of stuff that authoritarian regimes do is they target the intelligentsia and specifically the scientists and the science and and the most extreme Look, example what, what, is what Mao did in China or, or, or what Stalin did you know he, he yeah, yeah. sent Vavilov the Mendelian geneticist to the gulag for for Lysenko even though his theories yeah, killed yeah, millions of, of peasants and the and Russians are Sakharov as you talked about that, yep. that's right so this is this is you know what what the far right's doing and so again it's part of the canon you know the Putin over Ukraine um, the election was stolen um, and watch out and watch out for those scientists and, and the science because uh, that's that's part of the elitism and even though it's billionaires that are actually promoting it so i have a whole chapter in the book of you know this is what stalin did this is what victor orban does in hungary it's what bolsonaro did in brazil is target science and scientists so it's can it's, you explain yeah. can you explain for our audience the parameters of what the health freedom movement is and why it's actually gone way beyond our borders well, you know, this concept of health freedom, you know, as, as as the debunking of autism, you know, was hard to ignore. I think they needed a new thing. And and it started, uh, I think, in around vaccines when uh, the California legislature shut down vaccine exemptions after a large measles epidemic in Orange County and Marin County. And they said, from now on, you want to send your kids to school, the kids have to be vaccinated. And, and I supported that. And and that also produced this backlash saying, hey, you can't tell us what we want to do with our kids. And so we started to see this steep rise. And what you started to see was PAC money coming to support anti-vaccine activists. So conservative, I hate to use the word conservative because it's not really conservative, anything conservative about it. It's just kind of a label they use for it. But basically far-right extremist PAC money was going to support anti-vaccine activist groups in, in, in Texas. And... And and that's what came off the rails during uh, 
COVID-19. So, you know, you take Houston, which is a pretty liberal city overall, but, you know, it gave grand rounds, for instance, in, in East Texas at University of Texas, Tyler, which is a very conservative area. And basically everyone you talk to lost a loved one because they refused the COVID vaccine during the Delta wave. And, and that's when you really, after vaccines were widely available. So that's when you really start to understand that. And it's heartbreaking, right? Because one of the, I gave grand round, uh, I don't know if you know uh, Robert Harrington, the the chair of medicine at Stanford. I think he's going to be the sure. new dean good, of good friend, great guy. New the yeah. new dean, terrific guy. He's going to be new dean at Cornell. He had me out there giving medical grand rounds, and and I said, you look, if my car had broken down with a flat tire, and you gave me the choice for it to be broken down, or in Palo Alto, California, where Stanford is, or or East Texas, I'd pick East Texas in a second. In Palo Alto, California, it's very wealthy. Everybody would drive right past. In East Texas. You know, people will be fighting over who'd be the first to help you, you know, change your tires. So these are amazing people who were victimized by this far right aggression and, it, and, and it's heartbreaking. And, and the reason we have to talk about it now is because it is killing people. So what I say is, look, you know, I did my MD and PhD. After Yale, I went to Rockefeller and Cornell for my MD, PhD. I wanted to make vaccines. I'm doing that. But now part of being a vaccine scientist for me is also dealing with all of the anti-vaccine aggression because that's also part of saving lives, uh, even though it's even though it's unpleasant and and it's puts you in a very scary dark place in the world. Because now I have Steve Bannon, you know, publicly calling me a criminal. And you know, when he first did that, I thought, well, you know, the guy knows what he's talking about, right? And so uh, so Steve Bannon's going at Roger Stone's going after me. Uh, you know, you know, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene on her. Steve Bannon War Room podcast is going after me, and Tucker Carlson's going after me, and so it's well, um, well you know. But I think Peter, the the thing to me is one you you've exemplified what what courage under fire is like, and and it and it hasn't slowed you. I can't even imagine what it's like to be getting these death threats and and these kind of things. I mean, this isn't just someone publicly disparaging you. I mean, these are people who are actually making threats, who likely have you know are, are some of them are just unstable, dangerous people. And so, you know, you, you, but you've persisted that just remarkable courage. It makes me think also the importance of all of us in the scientific community, holding hands and supporting uh, science and, 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 and not just standing by, but being actively supportive of, you know, effort. Yeah. Well, this is why I'm so grateful for coming on this podcast because, you know, too often, I think it was MLK said, and said it. Not that I'm comparing myself to MLK, but he said it's not so much the words of the enemies; it's the silence of the friends. That's often the hardest part, and and you don't hear from the scientific societies or the national academies much, and or the college university presidents, and and you know I understand part of it is they see me getting beat up, and they don't want to deal with that. But but also I think part of it is there, many cases their donors are coming from that political side, or they need, or they're accepting congressional money, and so it means that there's not a lot of us out there that are crying foul and calling attention to it as as, as well. And I, I'm worried that this this is the warm up act that it's not only going to affect you know COVID vaccines, but it's going to spill over to all childhood immunizations. And I also worry that's going to affect how we uh, act as professional scientists. I don't think it's going to stop as just vaccine scientists. We're seeing all the virology being threatened right now. 
You're seeing what's happening at the NIH. They want to shut down international research by making these unrealistic demands, saying they want you to keep have access to the notebooks of all of your international collaborators. Yeah, Who's yeah. going to do that? Who's going to, you know, you're going to translate your scientific notebooks from Vietnamese into uh, English, and, and then is your general counsel at Yale going to sign off on it? I, I don't think so. So so it's going to shut down international research. And so we, we have to be willing to push back some, even though it takes us into a scary place. I'll, I'll end with another quote that I think really applies to you very well. And that is the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And while that quote has multiple attributions, the truth of it remains. And we're very lucky to have you. Your book, The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, is really an, it's an easy read. It's a meticulous read, but it's also a painful read at times to realize the challenges we face. But I appreciate you so much for writing it and joining well, us on the you. podcast. Thank you, Peter. And thank you. You know, Mitch, your very busy schedule, you took you, you took time to write this book in, in service, in, as a service to the country. And, uh, you know, that's just another thing. I mean, you know, all your time's so valuable. You're, you're so busy doing so many different things. You've invested in this communication and, and education piece. Anyway, thank, yeah, thank I'm you. I'm sure it's, the book's going to endear me to a lot of interesting people. And so <laughs> we're with well, you. We but are I'll, backing but, you. But, but I'll, be at, I'll be at Yale in October. So I look forward to seeing. We're looking forward and, to it. Uh, yeah. Looking, Thank you so much, Peter. Back to Thank you. Back. Well, that was terrific. I'm so glad we got him on. Howie, all credit to you for, for booking Peter Hotez. So really, I'm so thankful that he joined and he is, he speaks so fondly about you. It was great to oh, see no, both of you on the screen at once. He's amazing. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter. Are we calling it Twitter? We're going to keep calling it Twitter, darn it. <laughs> That's I'm, right. I'm, I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-E-L. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu, aside from Twitter or X or whatever. And our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the Healthcare Track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu slash EMBA. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management, the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers, Ines Gil and Sophia Stumpf, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They are amazing. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much. And to our listeners, we'll be back to a regular schedule soon. But thanks for joining us for the special podcast. Thanks, Harlan. 